Hi, this is Kristen Regal. And this is Paul Rock. And welcome to the Common Room Podcast. Um, every Sunday at 1045, we gather together to talk about life and spirituality, about the common experiences we share, as well as some of the questions we wrestle with. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope to see you some Sunday at 1045. Today to have uh, Dr. Jean Haig, and she is um, at St. Paul School of uh, Theology here in Kansas City. is a uh, United Methodist minister, um, and um, is is a dean there, and also, but then kind of teaches or focuses or what, like. What are your areas of? What was your dissertation in? What was your uh, domestic violence? In domestic violence. Most okay. of my writing and research has been on. Um, Violence against women and children. Yeah, yeah, and been at been at um, St. Paul's for 19 years. Um, so this is welcome to the common room. Thank you. Yeah. A <laughs> um, couple of things. Uh, have you gotten your football stuff out? Because I don't have any football references. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Is yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I was feeling really bad about that. I, I got a lot of uh, input from people about what I should say, but it just didn't work, right, <laughs> to talk about football marriages. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, <clears throat> so thank you so much for um, having me with you today. I have to say that you, you need to be really, really... Uh, impressed with your pastor even more so than you probably already are because I don't know how he does this every Sunday literally there's no breaks between these three services (laughs) and he um, evidently shows up at all three of them one right after another every Sunday yeah so um, a couple of things uh, one thing I want to do before kind of get into what is the sermon although we're going to try to make that a little bit more dialogical um, I want to share with you a little bit of my story because my story influences and shapes uh, how what I think about marriage and how what I believe about it as all of yours, your experiences of marriages in whatever way, whether that's someone else's or your own, um, your, your parents or your friends or your children's. Oh, no. Probably not. <laughs> Our children's. Um, uh, it shapes what we think, right? It biases us. It gives us a certain lens. So I want you to know right up front on this topic, which is really, you know, these this series you're doing, love, sex, and relationships, is pretty personal stuff. And our personal, it's pretty some stuff we keep pretty private, right? So um, we want to be aware of how our own experience shapes us. So I want to share a little bit of my own story. Um, first, I, I'd like to you to know that I am married. Um, my spouse is Mary Margaret. You can wave. Yeah, <laughs> she's my show and tell. <laughs> um, I, I'm very. She she was prepared to do that. I you know I, I vetted all the materials with her before I shared, and she made me cross out two lines. She made me cross them out. So. I won't be sharing those with you, but another day, maybe, <laughs> when she's not in the room. <laughs> um, so I was uh, of an age uh, where, um, y- you know, what was expected of me uh, as a, a young girl was to 
grow up, get married, have children, and manage a household. That was the expectation. That's pretty much what I saw as my future. And so I did just that. I uh, graduated from college and I got married and I had two daughters and um, I married a man, right? So I had a husband. Marrying other than that was not even thought of <laughs> that I can remember. I don't even remember that being in the conversation back then. Um, so 15 years later, uh, we got divorced. And at the time of the divorce, I was, I was completely disillusioned with the idea of marriage. I thought, um, you know, this is an institution that oppresses women still. It's uh, not conducive to love. And furthermore, it assumes that um, at the age of 20, you can make uh, predictions and promises about the rest of your life, <laughs> which is, you know, for most of us, pretty long time. And the way the world is changing, I don't know how we expect anybody to do that. Um, so I was uh, very sure back then that I would never do that again, get married, that is, never again. Um, so I, I had my daughters and I moved to um, Tallahassee, Florida, where I served as a United Methodist pastor and uh, soon met Mary Margaret. Um, and we saw each other uh, for about a year. Don't know whether you call it dating because you know back then what we were doing was not really talked about very much. Uh, well, I mean, we were doing good things, right? <laughs> it, was about, it was talked about, but not in positive ways. Um, so there's a lot of backstory there. I'm not going to talk about today, maybe another day, but you can imagine uh, to, uh, what had to transpire in there. Uh, Mary Margaret and I, um, after about a year, we were traveling one day down the highway to go to the beach in Florida, and we had a conversation that concluded by us um, committing to one another uh, or not, I wouldn't use that word commitment because I was pretty straight about word at the time. I would have said we agreed that we would be that we would call ourselves partners. Jean, can you tell Mary Margaret's background just just so you know? Uh, she she was an Episcopal priest at the time we yeah. met. I was serving a Methodist church. She was in the Episcopal church. Mm -hmm. um, that's a whole very interesting story. <laughs> like I said, <laughs> there's lots of stories. But, um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's funny how that kind of adds something to the, to the picture. Um, so on that day, we decided that we would call ourselves partners. And that was February 6th, 1993. That is the day that we continue to celebrate as our anniversary, which is this week, right? So this week on February 6th, we will have been together as partners for 27 years. Well, you should know whether it's good or bad before you start clapping. <laughs> because that's one of my things, you know, just the length of time you've been together doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot. <laughs> but, um, so let's fast forward a little, but it is good. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Uh, so fast forward a little bit. Um, we were, uh, we packed up our household together at that time. 
um, and moved across the country from Florida to Denver with our with the, my two girls, who are, we now call our two girls, and uh, two cats and a dog. And we set up household in Denver. Um, it was it was a new thing. We had a lot of working out to do, and we had um, you know little some family stuff to deal with. Um, Mary Margaret was brave enough to come into a household with a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old. So that was kind of rough. Um, <laughs> uh, so when we were getting ready to come to Kansas City, we realized how much our relationship had strengthened and deepened and what it meant in the years that we spent in Denver. And we had a quite strong circle of friends and our children were there, and we were leaving them in Colorado when we moved here. Uh, they were in college. We didn't leave them on the side. <laughs> <laughs> well, you ask our youngest daughter, she would describe it as you guys deserted me. But anyway, um, so we wanted to have some way to mark our relationship in some kind of public way. We wanted our friends and family to be there. Um, so we started planning this event, and I was still really not interested in anything that resembled a wedding. I was very, uh, my feminist self was very critical of the institution of marriage. So we toyed around with uh, commitment service or covenant service or holy union. And I didn't really like any of those. And Mary Margaret and our friends were all getting frustrated with me. And so finally they just decided to call it the thing. And that is literally what we called it, the thing. We had a thing, and it was wonderful. And it was just a thing in which we talked about love and justice and commitment or something like, not use that word, I don't know if you <laughs> use that word. I didn't use that word. Um, so we did that, and then we moved to Kansas City. And in 2013, we celebrated 20 years. I, I was pretty, the 20-year mark was pretty important because I'd always said if we make it to 20 years, I might believe that it's real. Well, we made it to 20, and, and we had a celebration uh, of our anniversary on February 6th. And at that time, you might remember that states were thinking about, uh, some of them had made uh, same-sex marriages legal, and so there was a lot of conversation in our community about, well, are you going to get married? Are you not going to get married? What are you going to do, especially for those of us that have been together a long time? And so... One night I came home and I said to Mary Margaret, you know, I've been thinking, what do you think about um, if it's financially beneficial to us that we get married in Maryland, that we check out and see if it would really be in our financial best interest? Now, I, that wasn't very romantic, right? Uh, and it's not the kind of proposal you usually think about, but we'd already done all that. But, so it was more like, okay, now that we can file taxes together, we can get, we need to see what, what this would mean for us. So we went to our lawyers, spent some time with the lawyer. Three hours it took us with the lawyer. Can you imagine? That was expensive, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it was not now. Yeah. <laughs> so we, um, this, this weird thing happened to me while we were in the lawyer's office talking about our finances and if we got married, what it would do to our taxes and our retirement and da, 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 all those things. Because um, we've been living together for you know all these years, 20 years, and all that was all mushed in there. You know, we kind of figured out a way. Uh, so in, the lawyer was kind of talking, and I was sitting there. We were actually across. No, yeah, we were across the lawyer, and I. 
she, it looked like she was going to come to the conclusion that no, it would not be good for us financially to get legally married. And I had this weird feeling. It was like a lump of emotion. And I thought, what is that? Because really, I didn't think I cared about getting married, right? I cared about you know, getting all the benefits, the legal benefits, if it was really beneficial to us. But other than that, I didn't care. But what I noticed this lump in me was disappointment. I actually felt disappointed about something that I didn't think I would care about, right? So I'm like, hmm, well, that's strange. I got to figure that out. Well, it did turn out to be financially beneficial for us. And we did get married at a courthouse in Maryland with uh, her Mary Margaret's sister and brother-in-law. And our children and grandchildren came via FaceTime <laughs> to, to the uh, event. Um, you know, but I still am not sure about this thing, this marriage thing. What I know is that um, what we have is a source of great joy, great frustration, um, but it also has this kind of sacred quality to it. Um, this, it touches my soul, and it's so um, surprisingly deep, mm -hmm. right? Surprisingly deep. But I'm not sure that that's what marriage is, is really actually all about. And I'm not sure what being married has to do with that. So I share all that with you to share with you sort of my, you know, I've been divorced, I've been married, I, all these things that I've had in my life. And to invite you to think about how your own experience of looking at marriages or your own experiences of marriage or not being married uh, shapes how you think about it as something good, something you strive for. You know, what meaning do you give it? Um, and I don't know if you've talked about that. Have you talked about that already? <clears throat> Would you all be willing to, as only as you're comfortable and not asking anyone to share? I mean, I did, I edited out a whole ton of stuff, so feel free to edit out. But would you share with one another sort of how you think your own experience, your own um, history related to marriage influences your thinking about it and the meaning you give to it? We'll just take a few minutes. Um, do you know, I, um, I heard you all coming in, when I was coming in, talking about the Bible, right? So normally Christians go to the Bible when we want to get some guidance. And what I heard was, from, as I was just coming in late, but hearing, picking up, you know, the Bible doesn't really say a whole heck of a lot about marriage. It really, I mean, we don't have a lot of instruction on, uh, on uh, marriage. Um, I heard somebody, Jesus, as far as we know, was not married. Paul was against marriage because he thought it distracted from our devotion to God. Um, there are a few great love stories, quote, great love stories. Most of them are in the Hebrew Bible or um, Old Testament. Um, to, I chose Ruth today for us to, to focus on. And in the interest of time, I think I'm just going to tell you the first part. I'm not going to read the, the passage. You know, do you know the book of Ruth? Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so, so at the beginning of the book of Ruth, uh, Naomi uh, is in Bethlehem. She gets married. They have two sons. There's a famine. And so 
uh, she and her husband and two sons move to Moab. While they're in Moab, Naomi doesn't have any more children. Um, her sons grow up and get married. Her husband dies. Then each of her two sons dies. So now we've got Naomi and the two uh, daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, right? And Naomi says, you know, um, there's nothing for me here. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem um, and see what my sort of relatives can do for me. Yes. I just had a thought. I, mean, I don't mean, I know you're no, necessarily an Old Testament biblical scholar, but how old, if you had to guess, how yeah. old do you think these three women would have been in this story? Oh, you know, I try, I thought about looking that up more carefully, but they, it's hard to tell because she went 10 years. Once they were in um, Moab, it was 10 years that she went without any children, and then her husband died, right? So what, she would have been like, young right. in our terms, but she was not of childbearing age anymore in her mind. Maybe, but maybe not. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't really, I didn't do the research, but I'm reminded that women's um, childbearing years have changed over centuries. So I just don't know what that would mean. Okay. But, but now Ruth and Orpah were young enough to still bear children. Naomi said, it's not likely. And even if I did, you know, even if I happened to find somebody get married and happened to get pregnant, um, she didn't think her daughter-in-law would want, would, they would want to wait to marry her new sons, right? So she told them to go back home and ask their parents to find them husbands uh, because they could still have children. Um, and <clears throat> Orpah said, I mean, everybody cried because they loved, you know, they were a family and they all, they, Orpah went home, but Ruth said, no, she wanted to go with Naomi. Uh, so that's the kind of story. Now, I also heard as I came in that you guys were reminiscing about what the Bible, um, you know, the, the kind of marriages in the Bible. So uh, at that time and through um, most all of history, right, marriage was an institution that was based on uh, and for economics and politics. Right, it was for men to um, gather uh, property and uh, workers, women and children, and amass wealth and power. Now, most most men couldn't afford to have more than one wife, um, but if you could afford to have more than one wife and have way more children, that was a good thing. So it was clear. The other thing that it was used for was to form political alliances. Right. So if my family. Get, if I marry someone in your family, then your family and my family are somehow joined, and so we can even have more wealth and power. You know, that's what it was about. Now, women didn't. Women were considered just part of the property, right? Part of the. They didn't have any rights of their own. They couldn't own any property, so nothing. They couldn't. They none of that was theirs. So they were completely dependent on men. And you know, you know some of this in the in the Bible. So when. Um, when Naomi was left without sons or without a brother-in-law, because in that time, two brothers-in-law would have also been obligated to take her in, um, she was really vulnerable. And there was really no, uh, there's no place for three single women or single women whatsoever. They were always dependent on somebody to take them in, right? There was no living by yourself. So, 
for most of history, thousands and thousands of years, it was this kind of socio-political uh, institution meant for men. Um, and um, the um, people, you know, I, I, let, me, let me say this, that if we had to talk about traditional marriage, truthfully, that is the traditional marriage. I mean, that has far outweighed any other kind of marriage that we've ever had in all of history and all the world, right? That kind of marriage. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't want to replicate that. Um, so I, I want to find some other way. Um, people also didn't marry for love. They didn't marry for love. They, um, they married for these political reasons. And, and the other thing is they didn't get married in the church or whatever semblance of religious gathering they had. You know, I, found, I find this really interesting. The church didn't get involved in, in marriages until several hundred years after Jesus. I, you know, I was surprised to find that out because you just kind of assume that it's a, it's a civil institution, it's a religious institution, and then it's a kind of a relationship, a form of relationship. But people didn't start marrying for love until fairly recent, like in the 1800s. And then primarily only in Western Christian countries, right? So most people, when you say biblical marriage or traditional marriage, they think about this marriage for love, a man and a woman, and they think somewhere that's in the Bible. Well, you know, I just, it's not there. It's not, now, now still marriage was a face-to-face -face person thing, so that's not to say that people didn't come to love and care for one another. I assume that they did because I think that's essential to who we are as human beings. But this idea that you would fall in love, right, and then um, share, you know, fall in love and that a, in those, most of the time it was a woman would you know, be taken care of by a man and run a household and have children, that is a fairly new notion, fairly new notion. So um, I think though that in our current um, understanding of marriage, there are still a lot of vestiges of this old women as property model. I mean, it was there for thousands and thousands of years, and it still kind of affects us in kind of interesting ways. Um, maybe not most of you like it did me uh, when I was raised in the 50s, right? But still, um, one of the things that I think about, uh, one little sign of this is that um, when people get married, and this happens in, in our community too. Um, we have a lot of uh, lesbian friends who are, who are married and this, this conversation always comes up and I think it comes up in every kind of marriage there is. What do you do about your name? Right, now women who marry men are still confronted with that question. What do I do about my name? Do I give it up? Do we hyphenate? Do, uh, but the men never have to think about that unless they are willing to hyphenate, right? So then it's like, what do you do with the children? But this, the point is not whether you decide to change your name or not. And, and we have friends, lesbian um, spouses, who have changed their name, right? So they both have the same last name. But the point is that this issue of choosing about your name 
is tied to when women were property of the man, right? So that's still, all these years later, still a vestige of that, still influences our marriage. Yeah, you have a question. Get male Mr. and Mrs. Paul Roth. Yeah, yeah. We, we're, we're moving away from that, but you still see it. A lot. You still see it a lot. And it's just a sign of this institution that, on the one hand, we think we've rejected, but on the other hand, it's alive and well. Right? So it's, it puts all kinds of pressure on us. Now, what, I, um, what I've, I've come to believe, I, I can always be convinced that I'm wrong, um, and I've been wrong lots and lots of times, but I, I really think that one of the reasons when marriage is so hard today is because we want it to serve too many purposes, right? And it's not that we individually don't know how to be in relationships. It's that we don't have social structures that support it. We have social structures that both support, um, still support gender inequity, but also support individualism. They don't support relationships, they support, our structures support individuals, right? They support um, uh, wealth and power and the accumulation of it. They don't make policies that are good for long-term commitments or for uh, couples or families. Uh, so I really think that, um, that that is what we run up against. What, do you all, do you all see some signs other places where um, uh, social structures are not created to, whether those are norms or institutions, are not created to support long-term commitments? I mean, one of the things I see a lot is, you know, what it means to have a job in one place or the other. Yeah. I just think that we just had a baby a year ago, and I just think of, like, parental leave, uh, like, most of the time, moms don't get enough, but the yeah. second parent, yeah. just to help support right. their spouse, doesn't get doesn't really get hardly any. It's like a, because we're still based too on that sort of single breadwinner model. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the structures assume a single breadwinner who can stay home, mm -hmm. right? Any others come to mind? Well, I mean, being that the in this, I guess this kind of ties to the single parent, um, especially when it's a mother who there's still that unequal pay thing out there of mm -hmm. you know men making close to a dollar more per hour than women and so that doesn't really help those single mothers with their families either because right. trying to support their family you know they, they don't have a man in their house to be that breadwinner kind of yeah. thing, so. and, and what happens when kids get sick right <laughs> think about the policies in our workplaces that influence what we do if we have a kid who gets sick at home. And someone has to stay home. Someone has to be there, right. So. And it's so hard yeah. to figure all that out, right? Yeah. And think of the stress that puts on relationships, married or not, right? Yeah, the cost of healthcare. Yeah. Crazy. yeah. And one of the things, and you kind of alluded to this uh, in another service, but that I, as a pastor, I know a lot of couples who are there widows or widowers or they've been divorced or whatever and they you know have got a wonderful relationship with each other they find each other later in life and they they're going to grow old together they're committed to each other but they don't want to get married 
Right. And they don't want to be, get married because it has to do with their assets, it has to do with their health care, it has to do with all these things that don't encourage them to get married. And so they just cohabitate um, and come up with some different name. But these are people in their 70s, 80s, 90s yeah, who yeah, yeah. can't get married. And when we were talking with our lawyer when I told you about, she was telling us about how often couples who've been married maybe 50 or 60 years um, come to her and they have to get a divorce in order to be able to provide health care for one of the spouses, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, especially if someone has a disability. Right. You're like disabled. Right. Now, like Medicaid nobody that. talks to you about that. I don't know if you talk about that in premarital counseling, <laughs> but I mean, they, you know, nobody says to you, before you uh, get married, let's talk about your financial expectations. Let's talk about what will happen to you. Um, let's talk about how you organize all that. But it's really, you really find out about it when you have to unpack it if you ever try to get unmarried, right? That's when you realize, like, oh. Or when you try to sort things out, like, how, you know, us sitting down, is it financially beneficial to get married or not? That's the, that's the thing. It's both a civil, cultural institution. And then there's this marriage thing that means it's a long-term, committed, loving, intimate relationship. And I think in our society right now, we don't have a way to bring those two things together. That the one fights this one. But at the same time, I'm sorry, I keep interrupting. No, that's but good. Just at the same time, one of the things, one of the reasons I continue to be an advocate for traditional marriage or whatever is, is that I just know um, that sometimes, the, the economic beings that we are, sometimes it's it, to know that I've made this promise to this other person in front yes. of God and everybody yes. else, and yes. it's legally binding. Yes. This is going to yes. be a shit show to untangle this. Yes. Thing. And so sometimes sometimes <laughs> yeah. you're like, okay, yeah, we're and you a bad need that season. structure because it helps you make it helps you live out your values. Yes, right, right, right. And right. so I don't. So right. how do you how do you tease that out? Yeah. Because I'm not I'm not trying to endorse that. All the things that you right. said were negative, but at the same time, there's something about that that is unique sometimes. Yeah, and and that's why I think um, we ought not to give it up. Right? I mean, we can give it up. I'm okay with that. I mean, not, for whatever reason, individuals decide to or not get married. But this idea of having this kind of structure around long-term committed relationships, having it uh, be public, having it be uh, uh, asking the community to support us and to hold us accountable, right? That that helps it from being too easy to just depart, although it rarely is that easy. But but also then I think we have to work really hard to be aware of the social structures that are pushing against that. And I think, you know, I, I, um, I have no idea where I am in my sermon, Paul. But, um, <laughs> I was thinking, you know, people, people want to come to a sermon on marriage and they want to hear sort of this, what makes a happy marriage, right? And I, I didn't bring that because I think we all know what makes a happy marriage. What makes a good, strong, loving, intimate relationship? Communication, love, respect, you know, equal uh, part, uh, power distribution, uh, self-sacrifice, all those things make a good relationship. And they're all important. And some of us are good at them, some of us aren't. Um, some relationships can be strong that way and some not. But is that sufficient 
for making a marriage? Is it sufficient to look at our own little individual selves and our individual relationships? And I say no. And I think, in fact, one of the big reasons it's so hard is because we don't look at the way that the norms and practices and institutions around us pressure us to do just the opposite of forming long-term, committed, intimate relationships and form families. And if we did, we would be able to put some perspective on that. Now, I've got to go back to Paul and see where, I, where I'm supposed to be here. Um, Ruth and Naomi. Oh, I do want to read that that passage from Ruth and Naomi. So there's a the passage uh, that where Ruth says, this is 115. Uh, the passage where Ruth turns back to Naomi and says, um, I, I, you know, she clings to her. It's the language we use for a wife and a husband clinging, right? She clings to her. And then Ruth says, this passage that will, may sound somewhat familiar to you, we used to use it a lot in weddings. I haven't heard it used in a wedding in a long time, but I always think it's interesting when it is. Uh, Ruth said to Naomi, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. And so they went together. Now, the rest of the story is, when they got to Bethlehem, they looked for a husband for Ruth. And uh, that was Boaz. And Ruth seduced him, and they had a baby. And at the end of the book of Ruth, you really should go back and read it. At the end of the book of Ruth, uh, Ruth... Uh, presents the baby to Naomi and to all of the community. It's a really interesting passage. But I think this, this passage is held up in the tradition as the epitome of devotion and faithfulness. I think it's a good basis for us to think about. And I think that you know, at our very core, where that which we call the image of God is, is our deepest longing to love and be loved. That that's essential, right? So this loving relationship needs to be our priority because that, I think, is the deepest part of our humanity and our connection to God. And I think that um, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about marriage, but it tells us a lot about love, right? It tells us a lot about love and how important Love is to knowing God and to experiencing God. And when we open ourselves up to somebody um, in a loving way, when we, when we open our bodies to them, when we open our souls to them, we can encounter God and all that is holy and divine and good and wonderful. And when we um, spend our days negotiating, you know, the good and the bad and um, negotiating how we're going to keep this together and, and still love each other. You know, I think it's in that, when we do that day after day, year after year, we can encounter God. I think that's a bit of the divine. And that what it means, what God does with us and what we need to do with each other. So um, I don't know if marriage needs to be a part of this. I, I don't know. Um, 
Probably not, but I think it's worth going after something. And I think it's worth uh, also celebrating whatever form of loving relationship we have, but we need to be there for each other and we need to create a world that supports that kind of deep love and long-term relationship. Um, what else do I have to say, Paul? You've heard it. Give us those vows again. I thought that was a good kind of that's neat one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think we ought to think about these vows, right? These are vows from um, actually from the Presbyterian uh, service of marriage. And every variation of the service in our order of worship had these. I want us to think about these vows as taken not as a individuals, one person to another, right? But as a community, right? What if we understood these vows as a community? So they, they're like this. The question is this. Do you promise to be loving and faithful to one another in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as you all shall live? And the answer is, we do. Now, now. conversation. Yeah, have a seat, because you've been on your feet for a while. But yeah, uh, can you join me in saying thank you? Yeah. Uh, it's just so wonderful to have, you know, one of the things we talk about is, is uh, one of the, the, the negative things about the way that God is typically talked about is that God is typically talked about from one perspective. And, and it's been a pretty homogenous perspective for a long time. So just to get different voices, different perspectives, it, it, it's not, I keep telling folks, it's mm -hmm. not because you want to be PC or progressive. It's yeah. because you want more of God. You, you want to understand God more deeply. And so when you hear different perspectives, you're like, wow, that is beautiful. I've never thought about that before. And that helps me to actually mm -hmm. know God and experience God more. So thanks for helping us experience God a little bit more. And I just wonder if we've got just a few minutes before we need to wrap up. If, if, what um, Jean shared sparked any any questions that any of you had that, that might be helpful, and uh, we could even, if Mary Margaret wants to answer, I'll, I'm going to start, <laughs> I'm gonna start yeah, off. Yeah, Mary Margaret. That's <laughs> well, the reason I say that is I'll, I'll get the ball rolling, and then if other folks want to. So my question is, so you, you consider your children your children. Yes. Um, so what advice do you give to them in terms of, whatever, coupling, life partnering, what, what? We try to stay away from giving advice on the <laughs> But what are the, what, like, you know, you know, the typical things that you would say, I hope you yeah. find a whatever, like, what, what, how, how have you deconstructed and reconstructed those wishes as parents for your? I don't think, I don't know. I don't think we've done that very well. Well, I know one thing that I said one time that has become. It's a family story. It's a yep. family story. And our eldest daughter, had come back from being, um, I don't know if you know about semester at sea, mm -hmm. but um, so she was on semester at sea and her boyfriend at the time had gone to Spain to meet her when she, at the end of the trip. And so that we were living in Denver at the time. And so they both came to Denver. Now, my oldest daughter was my one hope for a countercultural. <laughs> so they they came to dinner and and you know they stayed with us and everything and so we were sitting there um, having some beverages and so they decided to tell us that 
um, they had decided they were going to get married. And Jean just sat there and her mouth fell open. <laughs> and I said, got my words kind of mixed up, but it was interesting what I said. And I just did a toast and I said, I just wish you guys have a very long engagement. <laughs> <laughs> because the girls experienced, you know, my marriage to their father, and then they experienced this very large family that included their father's family. So, um, and then our youngest daughter got married and got divorced and is now very happily married, and our oldest daughter, I mean, it, you know, there's just been, I think it just happened, yeah. right? Um, and so I, I never think about it as, you know, we don't sit down and, well, they do go to church with us when they were younger, so they might have picked up a few things. But, <laughs> but I'm thinking, because what you, what you said just really struck me about how, in terms of the image of God, that, that yeah. one of the best shots we have at experiencing that is to, like a Ruth and yeah. Naomi, like where you, yeah. where you commit to somebody else, and, I, and, and it causes you to have to be really selfless, and it yeah. causes you to have to stick through some shitty stuff and, yeah. and work really hard and put someone else's needs... And when you do yeah. that and you join intimately with somebody in sharing life like that, you really do experience a, you used yeah. a, a yeah. divine or divine. something or something. Yeah. So how, but how, it's interesting because our youngest daughter, when she was not happy in her marriage, she was more committed to it than she should have been. Mm -hmm. And it took me saying to her, I think you might be better off not married. But yeah. she was like, but you're supposed to be married and commit yeah. to it. And, you know, so she had, it was interesting to me that she had inculcated that mm -hmm. idea. Yeah. Thank you for being willing to. Mm -hmm. any, other, any other questions or thoughts? There's like a vital component to that is that it is a lot of work and it can be exhausting if you're the only one working right. though that mm -hmm. some of that equality of power and respect. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I think the importance of having somebody that gets it, they're yeah. in the fight with you and yeah. give you the much work that you're and allow some flexibility around your understandings of what that means in the interest of the long haul. Hmm. So I mean, I've seen couples do some real creative stuff to make it through the long haul, right? And I've seen it work sometimes and not work sometimes. Alex, you were gonna say something? Yeah, just it's, it's interesting that Jesus didn't say a lot about marriage and just wondering if you have any thoughts about like why that was and also so it, it sounds like it was hundreds of years later when the church introduced marriage as hmm. as a part of it. And so like, just Yeah, what's that about? I, like, about that. Yeah. I think it because it just wasn't a big deal. I mean, it was just part of the economic system. And so we look at it through our eyes of this whole love thing is something that's so important. But it, back then it didn't have anything to do with marriage, right? That That, that focus was not part of it. So... That's my, that's my short answer. Kind I just like don't buying think. Kind like buying a house or something. Pardon me. Kind of like buying a house yeah, today. Exactly. Like it just, yeah. yeah, it was just you know, it's like digging a garden, right? It just wasn't, it wasn't, didn't have the same weight we put on it. And I, like I said, I really think that we put so much on it now that it's very hard to make it work. But I still find it funny because wasn't it still kind of taboo to? Um, for a 
woman to be pregnant but not be married, I mean, wasn't that kind of a... Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and, oh, it's, yeah. and it's funny oh, yeah. that, like, marriage, you know, like you said, it was just, it was not a big deal. It was just this thing that happened. But that was because, different. the reason that was not because, uh, that was because that woman, um, uh, well, she wouldn't have any place to be, right? It was all about, well, who was the father of, your, of that child? And that father or that husband or that, you know, that brother, somebody had to take on that baby. Right. Right. Because a woman couldn't do it on her own. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because she was still yeah. kind of considered That property. baby was somebody's property. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she had no really, I mean, it's just so foreign to us. I don't think we can get our head around right how different their assumptions about marriage and family were. Right, and the whole structure. The whole structure is completely different. Government system. And and before they had marriages, they just kind of, people just, you know, ancient, ancient, they just kind of hung out in in groups, right? right? There weren't any kind of structure, you know, they had babies and whatever to keep the line going, but there wasn't this kind of structure around who got to have sex with who, right? Mm-hmm. It was way looser. If you want to read an interesting book about all this, Stephanie Kuntz, um, Love Conquers Marriage, A History of Marriage. C-O-O-N-T-Z. Really fascinating. Yeah. Because then you see how it influences us. So what do you think? You think I'm just kind of full of it? <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, I was thinking like, if Jesus didn't talk very much about marriage, like what did he talk about? And he certainly didn't talk about isolation. And I don't think that the opposite of marriage is isolation. He talked about community. Right. And I think like some of the healthiest marriages are born from healthy communities, right? When you have loving people who say, this isn't right, like mm-hmm. we're concerned for you or like to support you in upholding like the values that you've like set forth as a couple or as a community. And yep. um, I just think that that's a really beautiful image. And we've become so privatized that we think it's like bad form mm-hmm. to say, you know, like if we say to our, uh, we, uh, I remember Mary Margaret and I having a conversation about how we should speak to our friends that we thought we're not doing really well and not treating each other well, you know, but it's like, oh, but we shouldn't butt Defensive, in. Right. right. Well, and yeah, you don't want anybody else to like right. question your marriage and then you almost get like your younger yeah. daughter, like more yeah. like defensive of it. Yeah. Like, no, I have to. On yeah, and, yeah. So. I have to pretend it's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, the um, one I think one of the reasons why church and coming to places like this is not shouldn't be just out of guilt or um, tradition or whatever is that, and, and one of the ways we've kind of lost an element of that is that it is typically about coming sitting in rows and listening to a lecture and then maybe having a, a wafer and then, and then leaving. Whereas what the church was initially was people coming together to really care for each other mm-hmm. and, and, and to really be that kind of intimate community for each other. And so that's one of the, I think one of our dreams and hopes, obviously that's not, I'm not gonna get there with, with the common room, but is to, to share meals together, to talk, to listen, to have these really honest conversations, to admit some stuff that you might not admit when you're sitting in a stiff pew and there's, one person sitting up front talking. And so I appreciate everyone just kind of continuing yeah. to come with your thoughts, questions, doubts, being willing to ask those hard questions that maybe are, seem like they, they, they deconstruct or are countercultural, um, and to trust that God is in the midst of all of this. Um, in, the, in the other two services, we 
we did a traditional communion. Um, and so here we just did, we did a potluck because this is actually what the Last Supper was. It was a potluck, right? They, they just brought a bunch of stuff together. Jesus washed their feet. They fed each other. And he said, this is it. You want to know what it's like to be, you know, or how people are going to know that you're my disciples? This is it. You love each other. You feed each other. You care for each other. And so it's kind of neat coming back to what you said. This, like community, this is kind of it. This is really essential. It's not just nice. It's not just a traditional place to come and you know check it off your to-do list. It's like this is what we're supposed to do. We have to really care for each other and to be there for each other. So thanks well, for leading us into this. I feel like yeah. like church sometimes forgets what its purpose is. Yeah. Yes. And just like the yes. people need to get divorced yes. and break it off, sometimes yes. churches need to stop. Yeah. And start yeah. over. Start again. over. Yeah. Like, what is this yeah. about? Yeah. Yeah. And if we're not doing this, then what is the freaking point? Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's really interesting. That's one thing because one of the things that I'm sure you guys deal with as well, we have so many Presbyterian churches that have got a couple dozen people yeah. that are coming, but they've got a million dollars in their endowment, mm -hmm. uh, and they've got a building that they spend all their time worrying about, so and they then they've got they the service, and they can't they haven't gotten rid of the last two hymnals because they like the hymnal from the '40s or whatever. Uh, but it really is about what are we going to do with the. With the money, what about our building? Yeah. You know, who's going to play the organ? Who's get has really nothing to do with sharing our lives together, caring for each other, being there for each other. It has to do with all this external stuff that we have made. God. What is ultimate? We've made a God. Yeah. So it, it, yeah, the church is a mysterious, uh, you know, kind of a symbolic representation of of marriage. And and uh, so, anyways, on uh, on your way out, grab some more food, or we'll grab some food for somebody else that you love that doesn't have food, and. and take it to them and I wonder if uh, if maybe I, I love the benediction that you gave oh, and I wonder if we can stand and join hands and, and uh... yeah thank you all for indulging me and for listening to a little bit to, of our story so um, one thing I, from the from this topic I just I really think that our deepest desire uh, is to love and be loved and it is there that we meet God so I really invite you to lean into that and, and fight like um, you can say fight like hell to get the world to support that um, but I want to share with you a benediction that we use at the congregation where we worship and it goes like this <clears throat> may you live your life in such a way that wherever you go people will want to know you and know your God Amen, Amen. Amen.